I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. Time now for our weekly partnership segment with The Lever. And joining us now is the man himself, David Sirota of That Outlet. Great to see you, sir. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Of course. So this week, you guys are taking a look at the uh, at a potential path to end dark money. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. This is from Andrew Perez. It says, how Democrats could actually end dark money. Senate Democrats will vote Thursday on a dark money disclosure bill known as the Disclose Act. They should do what's needed to let it succeed. So first of all, just break down for us, David, what is actually in this bill? So the key... Part of this bill is to force 501c4 organizations to disclose their major donors. 501c4 organizations are technically, quote unquote, social welfare organizations. Uh, what they actually are, many of them in practice, are dark money groups. They're the groups that spend money in elections, uh, anonymous money, uh, slamming candidates, supporting candidates. Uh, some of them say, you know, go tell this candidate this, go tell this candidate not to do this. But the point is, is that they are conduits for anonymous money to essentially uh, influence and really buy elections. Uh, and by the way, not just elections, but uh, pushing for legislation, uh, pushing for court appointments and the like. We don't know uh, who is actually funding all of these groups, even though I think it was in 2020, a billion dollars 
$1,000 of dark money was spent in the 2020 election. So point is, a huge amount of un, unknown anonymous cash flooding into our elections uh, to buy to buy essentially our democracy. That is one of the threats of our to, to our democracy. And the bill would simply say, the big provision of it would simply say, uh, these organizations have to tell us who their donors are, uh, and 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 the the interesting thing is, is that 50 Democrats in the Senate are officially sponsoring this legislation. Uh, no Republicans are sponsoring it. And it's just a disclosure bill. Yeah. What I mean, have you heard any good faith arguments against it or they just don't really want to talk about it at all? Well, the Republicans have been saying, listen, we don't usually agree with uh, organizations like the ACLU, but on this one we do. And the ACLU, as an example, has put forward an argument that uh, that 501c4 organizations should have the right uh, to some level of privacy, that donors uh, should have the right to some level of privacy. Uh, and so the Republicans, uh, if you think they're making a good faith argument, uh, I guess if you take them at their word, uh, they are saying that I guess donors should have a, a right to privacy. I mean, my argument would be that if you're trying to influence uh, public policy, public elections, the public space, uh, and you're doing it at a level of you know millions, if not billions, Billions of dollars, uh, the public should have a right to know at, at least who effectively is talking to the public in that public square. So here's a potentially more difficult question to answer, or maybe it's not, I don't know. Um, yes, you have 50 Democratic sponsors on this bill. Are they actually committed to the underlying principle? Because you guys covered that the DNC just had an opportunity to ban dark money just from within their own primaries. So you're not having this whole like, oh, we don't want to unilaterally disarm against the Republicans. You're just talking about Democratic primaries. They didn't even take it up. So if this had an actual chance of really passing and it wasn't just like a virtue signaling effort, do you think you would still have this level of Democratic support? That's really hard to know. It's a great question. I, I think one thing we can take away from this is if Joe Biden is giving a speech at the White House calling on the Senate to pass this, if 50 Senate Democrats are officially sponsoring uh, the bill, including Manchin and Cinema and the like, what it tells you at least is that the party recognizes that the po that the politics around the issue of corruption uh, is now salient. That's a good thing. I, what I'm trying to say is that I think if Joe Biden has a dark Brandon power at all. His dark Brandon power is to figure out where the center of the Democratic Party is uh, and try to put himself there. And the center of the Democratic Party has clearly now uh, feels the need uh, to acknowledge and, and portray itself as against kind of unregulated money of corrupting our democratic process. And that took years to kind of move the center there. That's the good news. The bad news is, is what, you're, what you're talking about, which is they're bringing up this bill, knowing that they're not gonna kill the filibuster uh, to allow the bill to actually pass. By the way, in the past, when the Democrats had a trifecta in 2010, uh, they did the same thing. They they essentially allowed the filibuster to, to not let this bill, uh, the same kind of bill, pass. So it does raise the question: How much of this is theater? How much? How much of the Democratic support would be there for the Disclose Act if they actually were serious about doing everything that's necessary to pass it? I don't know what those numbers are, uh, but yeah. I think it's a fair question. Well, and it's become even more salient of a question in certain ways because we've seen the way that dark money has been incredibly instrumental 
in establishment Democrats keeping their establishment allies. So massive amounts of money. Well, I'll let you lay it out because you probably know the numbers better, better than I have. But there's really been a war on the progressive left of the party. And dark money has been an instrumental tool for the powers that be to keep their grip. Oh, for sure. I mean, millions and millions of dollars were spent just in the last few months uh, through dark money groups in those primaries uh, to essentially crush insurgent progressive candidates in their nominating contests. So yes, the Democratic Party has used dark money uh, to essentially put the thumb on the scale and select nominees in local races that it wants. Point being, there's a big, powerful part of the Democratic uh, power elite uh, that like dark money, that actually relies on dark money. Also worth saying that in the last election, 2020, uh, the Democrats benefited more from dark money, at least the dark money sources that we know of, than the mm-hmm. Republicans did. Oh, uh, th- th- there was a billion dollars of, of dark money spending, and th- most of that went uh, was was there to help Democrats. Now, it's not to say the Republicans weren't helped by their own dark money, but the point is, is that you're absolutely right. And this goes back to what you raised before, that the Democratic Party just recently blocked even having a vote on a resolution from some of its own DNC members uh, to simply say, let's not have dark money in our own primaries. So I think this is very, uh, really important. But I come back to the idea that there really is good news here. Uh, The bottom line is, if the president of the United States feels the need to come out to the public and say, look at me, look how much uh, I am against dark money, and I'm demanding the Democratic Senate actually pass this, some of it can be seen as theater. But it is an acknowledgement that this issue of corruption is, and, and polls show this, is becoming a huge issue among voters. And the only way, ultimately, I think we're going to get something like the Disclose Act is if there's a enough voters, enough of a critical mass, making it clear to politicians that this is a kind of line in the sand issue and people want action. Yeah, I think that's all well said. And while transparency isn't obviously all the reforms we would want in terms of campaign finance, it does give voters a greater understanding of the forces that are shaping, you know, the the uh, vote taking and the way these uh, candidates are running campaigns. And that level of transparency enables reporters such as yourself to really help expose the game of what's actually going on here. So, and, and, and can I make one last point on this? Because yeah, there's some one, one small point here also, which is to say that also transparency, I think, can provide some level of deterrent to some of the worst dark money behavior. What I'm saying is, is that part of the reason we've seen such an explosion in dark money is because the biggest of big donors know they can flood the system with money without having to take the kind of public heat, without having to face the kind of public scrutiny that they would if there were transparency laws on the books. So transparency, in in a, in a way, is a way to say, listen, if you want to dump money into elections and try to buy the political process, uh, you're going to have to actually uh, be known to the world that you're doing that. Uh, and that can be something of a deterrent to some of the most egregious behavior here. I think that is a wonderful point. Um, the Stock Act that discloses, you know, the trades that are being made by members has been an incredibly powerful tool, both for investigative journalists and also for um, grassroots efforts to try to hold these politicians to account and hopefully eventually maybe force a change in terms of what members of Congress are allowed to do. Um, David, always great to have you. Everybody, go and subscribe to The Lever if you are able. They are doing work that no one else is doing, really pushing a, a people's agenda to get to the root of all of this money in politics and corruption. That is such an important force shaping our politics. Great to see you, David. Great to see you. Thanks for having me.
So you guys know we've been keeping a close eye on that big Georgia Senate race, which could, again, determine control of the Senate, could even go to a runoff again for control of the Senate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Crazy stuff between Herschel Walker and incumbent Raphael Warnock. Several polls out this week have that race as tight as it could possibly be. One has Warnock up by a couple. The other has Walker up by a couple. Uh, A big issue in this race, or at least a big point of media discussion, has been sort of like negotiations around debating. Herschel Walker famously not, um, how would you put it, Sagar? Not the most eloquent. He has a Cogent. Way- yes. Yeah. Sometimes struggles to put together exactly, you know, coherent thoughts mm-hmm. into sentences in a way that really makes a lot of sense. So he did agree to a debate and seems to be kind of downplaying yeah. how he will ultimately perform at that debate. Let's take a listen to what he has to say. So I'm preparing. I'm this country boy. You know, I'm not that smart. And he's that preacher. He's a smart man. Wear these nice suits. So he's going to show up and embarrass me at the debate October the 14th. And I'm just waiting. You know, I show up and I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best. Wow. Um, in a way, I appreciate the honesty. But, you know, we talked about this in Atlanta at our live show. I don't think debates matter. I don't think they matter at all. The whole, like, uh, Fetterman, Oz thing. I love them. Yeah, I love me too. Covering them. I, I, I love the I'm hell out of it. I'm a junkie, and I'm not there typical is, of the American public. <laughs> there is vast arrays of evidence to tell us, statistically, that presidential debates, and especially down-ballot debates, have zero impact on the election. Almost all. Every single time. And every time there's like some fake thing, they're like, so-and-so gets a bump out of the convention. But then the second convention happens, and then that person get gets a bump. A bump. And then, and then three out. weeks later, <laughs> it's, it's the same thing. <laughs> You're like, so what is, so all these debates, listen, I think they're important. I think it's good to get people on the record. I found the debates very helpful for me to go back and look at what Trump was saying in 2016 and later. But like, let's just be all honest here about like whether it all matters I or sort not. of feel yeah. like, I mean, I could buy that maybe the presidential debates matter because but there's, there's no statistical evidence so, on that either. I know, because there's yeah. so much media focus right. on it and whatever. But I tend to agree with you. Mm. The national mythology around televised debates got built up after the like Nixon-Kennedy yeah, flop sweat exactly. thing. It was 1960. And right? so ever like, since then, I think we just take it as an article of faith that yeah. these things really, really matter. Right. Maybe you could say, like in the 2016 Republican primary with so Trump. So I was about to say, primary debates actually matter a hell of a lot. So the primary debates with Trump, Trump is also a unique figure. But at the same yeah. time, Newt Gingrich actually got a big bump out of his South Carolina primary. I think he like won the state of South Carolina. He had this great moment where oh, he like went after John King. Yeah. I forget exactly what he did. Anyway, it was, I, so I, I, he like I went after him because he mentioned his Me- wife. No, there was, remember him. there was that story about how Gingrich, while his wife was like sick with yeah, something in the hospital, yeah. cancer, right. when asked her for an like, open marriage and right. it's like broken the press. And that's John right. King that's opens right. the debate with right. this question and he's like, would you like to respond to these allegations? Yeah. And Gingrich was like, no, yeah. but I will. And then he just goes on a tirade. Yeah, he's yeah. Like, the corrupt mainstream, and the crowd of, went just wild. I mean, it was really a preview yeah, of the Trump. way that Trump would, would like roll through his debates. Anyway, all this is a long way of saying I also wish the debates mattered because I enjoy watching them and I think they're interesting, mm-hmm. but I don't actually think there's a lot of evidence that debates matter or that um, candidates refusing to debate matters. Again, something I wish mattered, but I don't think actually matters. And then the other thing we've been talking about with regards to Walker and Warnock, which I think any fair-minded person would say, just in terms of like candidate quality and like being good at being a politician, regardless of ideology, Warnock is obviously like vastly superior to Walker. I also don't think that matters that much. Yeah, I and agree. we see in the polls now, 
Um, so, in you know, in terms of Walker's comments here, I think it's kind of a clever strategy. What he's doing is trying to set the bar really low yeah. and say, like, look, I'm not that smart. I'm a country boy. He's a fancy guy with the suits, and he's a preacher, and he's going to come in, and he's going to make me look foolish. And then if he even just, you know, sort of maintains and doesn't get embarrassed— then that's viewed as a win. And we've seen this, too, in terms of the media coverage of how these debates go. Joe Biden famously, like, the bar was set so low for that guy in the debates that Mm -hmm. if he didn't just, like, drool on himself and fall over, the media was like, he did a good Joe Biden was great. Right. I, I'm not buying the country boy thing, having watched some of the videos of this guy's son, who is genuinely one of the most obnoxious jackasses I've ever seen online. <laughs> so I'm just saying, your son is like flaunting his wealth and all this other stuff. I'm like, I I, I don't think you've been a country boy for a long time. I mean, I don't know what his net worth is, but I'm going to guess it's like pretty high. Herschel Walker, uh, a lot more charming in my opinion than his son. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, I again, nothing against, you know, you look at him uh, in a way... Every time I've heard him spoke, I feel bad for him. And I think that, because it's like a sympathetic thing. I'm like, man, he's got to knock her That's how, kind of how I feel. Right? I feel the same. I'm like, oh, man. Like, this is, it's kind of how I feel with Biden where, you know, sometimes you're like, just get him out of here. Like, this is so uncomfortable. You just, uh, every sentence, you're like, oh, stick yeah, exactly. the landing, stick Having, the landing. Exactly. You know, you want you don't want people to do, like, I want to debate policy, like all this stuff. But you hear Walker speak, you're like, man, I feel, feel kind of bad for you. So at the same time, look, he's got a big name in Georgia, you know, easily, you know, Pretty easily won the primary. Trump is 100% behind him. And national trends matter more than anything. He very easily could win. Uh, oh, absolutely. I, I think Georgia— Probably me, 50%, in my opinion. True coin flip. Yeah. True coin flip. I mean, if I had to pick, we we picked in uh, when we yeah, were down in Georgia. Right. And I, I actually would give the nod to Walker right. because I just think that the economic issues— I just don't think that the candidate quality matters all that much. So we'll see. But it really is as close to a true toss mm-hmm. as it could be. Absolutely. We'll see how it goes, guys. So, some more cringe news out of Hollywood. There's a major announcement from Showtime. Let's put this up there on the screen. They are doing a five-part docuseries. Yes, you heard me correctly. On The Lincoln Project. Let me read you the description that they released to the Hollywood press. It will follow the group of former Republican operatives and strategists who made it their mission to defeat their party's sitting president, Donald Trump, in the 2020 election. There has never been a super super PAC that captured the imagination of the general public like the Lincoln Project. They showed us that you could use storytelling and the power of the internet to punch back and that you could fight a bully by bringing the fight right to their doorsteps. Released by Fisher Stevens and Kareem Amir. So Fisher Stevens, I think... I think this guy was like in Friends or something like that. Anyway. Oh, for real? He's like a famous-ish actor. Yeah, this, mm. this, this guy right here. I don't know. Uh, anyway, so I vaguely recall seeing his face on the television screen. Oh, uh, yeah, he was in, he was in uh, Succession too. That's another reason I didn't notice him. Anyway, uh, the point is, is that they are obsessed with these guys. And all statistical evidence that we have is that the Lincoln Project, which raised somewhat $100 million or so, had no impact on the election. And in fact, had the inverse impact of driving down turnout either amongst Democrats or convincing Republicans to vote for them. It was a pure grift operation. Not to mention their own cover-up of John Weaver, the alleged pedophile, and at the very least, like, alleged sexual harasser who has admitted to this by grooming young men uh, and actively was covered up by the organization. At the same time, they were all becoming stupendously rich. They were taking this uh, super PAC money and then paying themselves consulting fees, media projects, and more 
to have zero impact. Now, if you just want to say like, oh, these guys are like a business. Remember they had all their plans before the pedophile scandal about yeah. to like launch a podcast oh, network yeah. and a mm-hmm. media company yeah. mm-hmm. and all that. If you want to say like, hey, like this is what we're doing. We're monetizing. Like, okay, you know, I think it's gross, but whatever. But they're fooling boomers, specifically like MSNBC boomers, into thinking that they're changing the election and becoming extremely rich. This off is of the it. liberal version of the we build the wall. Yeah, group. yeah, that's right. It's like exactly. a sort of like fancier. Uh, version of that. But it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's taking people's genuine, like, political angst, anger, desire to do something, and just funneling the money straight into their own pockets. That was their innovation, was recognizing that they could create this content that they frame as it's like an ad that it's going to do something in the elections, which it didn't. No impact. No measurable impact. If anything, it hurt their own cause. But they could create this ad content and convince people that this was the way to fight back and funnel millions upon millions of dollars into their own pockets. That was their innovation. What's funny is when I showed Kyle that tweet with like the thing, he was like, oh, this is going to be good. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, it's like an expose, right? And we're like, like, no, dude. No, "No, it's the geography. It's (laughs) like, oh my God, aren't they amazing? (laughs) I'm actually genuinely surprised given how things went down with John Weaver that Hollywood still wanted to touch I this. think but probably what— what these guys are so good at, mm-hmm. that's their key talent, is, like, ingratiating themselves to the donor class or Hollywood elites or media elites and convincing them of their own bullshit story that they're super relevant and super important and super geniuses in media when the reality is, like, their stuff sucked, it didn't work, it didn't land, it was not helpful at all. Instead, siphoned millions of dollars that could have gone to actually useful projects into their own pockets. Showtime has always had horrific political content. They had the circus, and they've let that show run for years, which is, I mean— it's complicated because that those people were always like nice to me and the you know, the guy who ran it. But I mean, I'm just gonna be honest. I think the show is terrible, and it's the specifically John Heileman and uh, Alex Wagner, who's now over it at MSNBC. I think w- w- this has Heileman all over it, right? Because this guy is also I don't understand how anybody sees any talent in him. Look, Game Change was awesome. I totally get it. But outside of a uh, Morning Joe commentator, like. Why is this person raising all this money for the recount, which has been a totally failed media project? The circus keeps getting renewed like time after time. I mean, is anybody really watching it? Like, does it really have like a major impact? I'm going to go ahead and guess no. And this just seems, he's also, you know, very friendly with these Lincoln Projects folks. I would bet you he has something to do with this or like, you know, at least. It's a small, it's a little clubby. It's a very small club. Yeah, I don't know. It's very, Showtime is great. They've got some great shows. Yellow Jackets, shout out um, to Yellow Jackets. We just watched a phenomenal Uh, documentary about John McEnroe that was Showtime. Right, and Oliver Stone's JFK, shout out to them for letting the JFK doc be on Showtime. Mm, Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. They've got some great, Billions, I enjoy Billions. There's a couple shows like that. They're good. This is a miss. Yeah, this This is is a major L, (laughs) Showtime, I'm sorry. But it is true. I mean, it really does also expose the lie of the meritocracy. Like, there are some people who are just good at, like, working that system. Mm -hmm. Getting in with the right set of elites and being able to market themselves to those elites, irrespective of their actual results in the real world. What was that freaking network that had that collapse that had all that money and all that press. Remember, it was like, it was like, oh, this is going to so be the. Many. You remember what I'm talking about, right? Uh, they had the be, YouTube channel. The they had all these interviews with all these celebrities. Oh, uh, uh, it starts with a V, or it's it had the guy, Carlos Watson. Yes, that uh, thing. Oh, Ozzy. Ozzy, yeah, that's yeah. it. That's the yeah. same thing. Like, yeah. That guy was good at yeah. was persuading these elites that like this was a thing and selling them on the story, and so he gets all this funding and all this 
credibility and all these media write-ups and all of this. There was nothing there. No one wanted it at all. This, to me, is a very similar phenomenon to the the OZ phenomenon. I totally agree with you. Yeah, wow. There you go. (laughs) What a story for America. Indeed. All right, guys, some big and I know exciting news for our audience. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. The Clinton Global Initiative is back. Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea return to center stage their own after going dark during Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. The Clinton Global Initiative is back. And you knew, Sagra, that the moment they felt like they might be able to get away with it, they would bring back their big confab. This is, I, I really think for Hillary and maybe even more so for Bill, like their big aspiration is just to be sort of leaders of this cadre mm-hmm. of global elite. Bill especially. And this was their convening. They loved that they could bring all these people in from around world the world yeah. who would sort of bend the knee to them and all of this. But they had this line in the... Um, The New York Times article that I thought actually put it pretty well. They said, in many ways, the early days of CGI were the high watermark of the philanthro-capitalism era Mm -hmm. when trust in the wealthy and celebrities to save the world ran high. In turn, many significant organizations modeled themselves after the Clintons' endeavor. It really does feel like a throwback to a time period when people could have deluded themselves into thinking Hillary Clinton could give all these speeches on Wall Street to Goldman Sachs and then go ahead and like present herself as, you know, a friend to the working class. Um, That bubble has very much been burst. And this just feels like, you know, it just feels like such an anachronism to go back to that time. I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, the CGI was, it was crazy too. You know, I wrote a lot of stuff back in 2015 about the CGI and the Clinton Foundation. And I mean, the cutouts that they were using for their political career was insane. Like my personal favorite was the Moroccan king who literally admitted he was only donating to the Clinton Foundation so he could get a meeting with Hillary because he knew that she would probably be the next president. I mean, that so was like, almost- it was like. Direct. It like was pay almost. It was for play. sort of like, part and parcel of the whole idea. Yeah. Was like that their star power and their potential political power was what caused all these people to right. gather and do you know that they can then use for their vanity, yeah, their commitment, and, and travel and like all their family commitments. You know, it's like all this stuff. It's it remains like one of the more like outwardly corrupt enterprises uh, that was at the front of American politics. And of course, to bring it back, I, I do think though that like you said, in the context of today, it just reads like a total grift. Yeah. Whereas at that time. I mean, I'm not going to—most of us knew it was a grift, but I guess it was just more socially accepted to do so. Yeah, it um, was—I mean, it it had all those, like, girl boss, lean-in feminism Mm -hmm. elements to it as well. Um, They call it here—they call it a Davos on the Hudson event, which I think is kind of perfect. It's another one of these places where rich people can sort of, like— make themselves feel good, yeah, feel like they're part of the it's solution, like the world economic forms. rather than, you know, really clearly part of the problem. Right. Um, they mention here, too, I mean, basically, you had this hiatus um, because of the questions around it and because of Hillary's campaign, and this is sort of, I guess, the first moment where they felt like they might be able to get away with it. But the price of admission has been cut in half. So it gives you a sense of, you know, even they don't think that they can really restore it to its former glory and grandeur because that moment has just more than passed for them. Very true. Hilarious moment on the internet yesterday. Let's put this up there (laughs) on the screen. Tweet from Southwest Airlines. For those who are just listening, we teamed up with Guitar Center to surprise a flight full of customers flying out of Long Beach with a ukulele 
and a lesson. By the time they arrived in Honolulu, they were pros. Attached is a photo of an entire plane, all with their own individual ukuleles. Now, this prompted a significant discussion uh, online and pushback. And I am among the thousands of people who said they would rather have jumped out of the plane and be stuck. Imagine being stuck in a metal tube over the Pacific Ocean with hundreds of people. First of all, you're on Southwest Airlines, so things are already not going so well. Uh, Then, no, listen, the no seating thing drives me insane. I like it. I'm a fan. All right. Very controversial already. So first of all, you're on the, you're on a plane in the year 2022. Already generally an uncomfortable Yes, experience. true. Thank you, Pete okay, Buttigieg. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, then two, somebody hands everybody a ukulele, which they have never played before. Can you imagine the strumming? Now, Southwest claims that they everyone put them away after 20 minutes. You know there's one guy on there who, who is sitting and strumming. Stop. And there ain't yeah. no noise-canceling headphone in the world that's drowning out 350 350 ukuleles. So I don't know why I thought this was the funniest thing that's happened on the internet in a long time. Just the unanimity of people being like, this is literal, like fresh hell. I would (laughs) rather have snakes on the plane. I guess I get these ukuleles off this plane. Well, I liked looking at the picture that they shared because there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, some of them were really happy. People who have like a death stare. There's this (laughs) guy in the Broncos hat. Totally dead. This dude in the Broncos. Hat is like kill me, man. He's like just put a bullet in my head. There's like, some people who like have their headphones yeah. on are clearly trying to just right. like pretend none of this is happening. That would be me for the record. I'd just be like, I bet like, I can't handle this, man. I also thought yeah. about okay, even then once you get to Hawaii, right. now you have all your luggage and you got to carry freaking ukulele also, too, I, what, or how, feel bad about just like trashing this ukulele. Southwest like, going to bring do? it back? That's another question. Are they going to charge you for the extra bag? You really you think that? You know, what about on your next flight? Whenever you're coming home? Yeah. Are you what about have carry to on check space? Your freaking ukulele. Yeah. So now you're going to make me gate check my bag because you made me a ukulele. I'm just making things up. I don't. I don't know about you. Yeah. But I would. Yeah. I feel bad right. even if it's something that like I genuinely don't want. I I would feel bad just like throwing oh, yeah, away yeah, a perfectly good I, ukulele. I, I I'd feel totally guilty no, about I that. Totally agree. With so that. now you've created me with like a moral yeah. quandary. <laughs> And a mass inconvenience, yeah. and yes. my ears are bleeding yes. from the sounds yes. of 300 passengers. Everyone's like, no "Oh, they're going on vacation." The last thing I want when I'm going on, going vacation, on vacation is hearing some at some buddy playing okay. an amateur and then, ukulele. Did you think of this angle? Yeah. Um, Southwest, a lot of people, a lot of families fly yeah. Southwest, so you've got a bunch True. of kids, oh my God, yeah. toddlers playing with the ukulele, trying to hit people with it. Like, oh, great, great point. Forget it. Yeah. So, forget it. It's a parents' nightmare too, because. Right. Um, oh, yeah. take that thing away from a kid. Oh, He's forget gonna freak it. Out. They're going to freak yeah. out. They're going to freak out. <laughs> yeah. My, <laughs> did you guys, did you have to learn recorder when you were a kid? Oh, thank God. Are, did you really not? No, no, I never played. This is a, like a yeah. rite of passage in America, yeah. at least yeah. coming up when I did. Yeah. And they are literally engineered to make the worst possible oh. noise. <laughs> Yeah. But I'm sort of sentimentally attached to the recorder that I have had since I was in fourth grade because uh-huh. it was passed down through my family. That's nice. And it has yeah. my name on it in little right. letters. So I don't want to throw it away. But my kids, so I'll hide it from my kids, but they'll every once in a while, they'll find it. Mm-hmm. And just, it's the most god-awful sound in the universe. So I just imagine like that yeah. across the whole place. Times a million. Anyway, someone commented, they were like, we asked for two inches more leg space to be treated like human beings. And all we got was a ukulele. <laughs> ukulele. <laughs> so I don't know why I found it so funny. I did. I thought you guys might appreciate it.
Hey there, my name is James Lee. Welcome to another segment of 5149 on Breaking Points, where we dive into different topics at the intersection of business, politics, and society. And today, we're going to talk about a new company called Flow, touted as Silicon Valley's answer to America's housing problem. Now, I want to start today's discussion with actually a clip from Sagar and Marshall's Realignment podcast with guests Mark Andreessen, co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, a $28 billion Silicon Valley venture capital firm where they discuss the American dream. He'll be a central character in today's segment. Yeah, so look, I think the American dream, at its core, I think it's quite, it's a quite straightforward idea. And, and in fact, you might not even say it's an American dream, you might say it's a universal dream, right? Um, and I don't know if this makes me, I don't know if this is a right-wing view or left-wing view or Marxist materialist or what it is, but I think it's actually pretty straightforward, which is basically, it's the ability to basically provide for a family. Um, and it's the ability to provide for a family in particular in three dimensions that people care a lot about. And that are very, very important to, to families. One is housing, um, to be able to have a good house, right, in a, in a good place. Um, uh, second is education, um, to be able to basically have your kids be able to have a higher level of education and greater, you know, opportunities than, than you yourself had. Um, and then third is healthcare, um, you know, to be able to actually get, you know, have you and your kids and your family get taken care of when, when they get sick. And the problem that we have is the, uh, you know, I just named, like, if you ask me to rank order, like the three like industries in America that are like the most like screwed up and dysfunctional and where everything is going in the wrong direction, it's housing, it's education and it's healthcare. All right. A few points to dissect a Mr. Andreessen, I think correctly and succinctly defined the things most people desire in life, housing, education, and healthcare. We're obviously focusing on housing today. And B, I also think he correctly diagnosed the cause of America's housing crisis, which is a simple supply and demand problem. We aren't building enough houses to keep up with demand. And the reality is that despite any market downturns in certain over-leveraged regions due to recent interest rate rises, on average, there just isn't enough housing to go around, especially in those high demand areas with the most job opportunities and really, the only solution is to build. And Mr. Andreessen, I think, agrees. In 2020, he wrote a scathing blog post titled, It's Time to Build, in which he blamed the public sector for failing to address challenges facing the country, including housing, writing, quote, demonstrate that the public sector can build better hospitals, better schools, better transportation, better cities, better housing. Stop trying to protect the old, the entrenched, the irrelevant. Commit the public sector fully to the future. Milton Friedman once said that the great public sector mistake is to judge policies and programs by their intentions rather than their results. Instead of taking that as an insult, take it as a challenge. Build new things and show the results. So he's kind of challenging the public sector to step up to the plate and tackle these monumental issues facing our society. But I think he's also implying that the private sector can do a much better job, which brings us to flow. Money flowing into Adam Newman's new company, Flow. The former WeWork CEO and co-founder receiving a $350 million check from venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. It's the largest check the firm has ever written in a funding round, according to the New York Times. That brings Flow to a billion-dollar valuation pre-launch. The business aiming to disrupt the residential real estate market by creating a product consistent with service and community features, although exact details are not known. Andreessen Horowitz was an early investor in names like Facebook and Airbnb, and co-founder Mark Andreessen writing in a blog post today, quote, we think it is natural that for his first venture since WeWork, Adam returns to the theme of connecting people through transforming their physical spaces and building communities where people spend the most time 
their homes. Okay, there's a few interesting storylines here to address. One, Adam Newman, the disgraced founder and former CEO of WeWork, is back. And two, why did Mr. Andreessen make such a huge investment, $350 million, the largest in his firm's history, in flow? What is the business model, and could it actually contribute to solving America's housing problem? Mr. Andreessen, in a blog post announcing his firm's investment in flow, wrote the following, quote, Shelter is one of our most basic needs. In a world where limited access to home ownership continues to be a driving force behind inequality and anxiety, giving renters a sense of security, community, and genuine ownership has transformative power for our society. When you care for people at their home and provide them with a sense of physical and financial security, you empower them to do more and build things. Solving this problem is key to increasing opportunity for everyone. Once again, he's not wrong. I think his diagnosis is correct. So what exactly is flow and how is it going to address the issues of accessibility, affordability and ownership? What was once one of the world's most valuable startups adored by investors worldwide, WeWork famously came crashing down. One man at the center of the downfall was Adam Newman, the founder of the co-working space who was later forced out of the business after once announcing that he'd be the world's first trillionaire. His latest venture sees him shift to residential real estate, as rents in the US are rising fast, up 14% in the last 12 months alone. And with house prices continuing to soar, Joe Bloggs is being forced into rented accommodation. So what is flow? That is what you're here to find out about after all. Well, at the moment, there's little detail. The homepage for the website simply says flow will arrive in 2023. What we do know, however, is that since leaving WeWork, Newman has been building a substantial real estate portfolio, which includes 4,000 affordable apartments across areas such as Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and Nashville, among others, collectively worth over a billion dollars. So this has been in the pipeline for a while. Think back to the WeWork days in 2016, when We Live, a university halls for single sociable people, was being thought up. Instead of saying business units in work, we have missions. So our first mission was create the world where people make a life. That was for we work. We live is, is helping you live and not just exist. Back then, it was described as a new way of living, like a private club that anyone can join, whilst others suggested it was more of a hipster commune, a college life for grown-ups. Flow sounds similar, with affordable apartments that also offers a community feel that could improve the lack of social interactions in what has become a more remote world. Beyond this, there's also been leaks through LinkedIn messaging that suggest Newman is also building a proprietary payment system, with a tokenized reward program and crypto payment methods which is bound to be linked to Flow if these rumors do come true. It can be argued then that this is a revolutionary project within real estate, thought up to break down barriers and disrupt the residential market. So to define flow at this stage, we'd say it's a transformational real estate project focused on community-driven residential dwellings where renters can slowly build equity. Or according to the Wall Street Journal, it's a widely recognized apartment brand stocked with amenities. Are you convinced? I'm not going to go too much into Mr. Newman and his shenanigans at WeWork. There are numerous articles, documentaries, and even a dramatized series to do that. But I think it's clear that with this new real estate company, Flow, the, the playbook is very similar. Take something that's rather mundane, in this case, residential real estate, 
and envelop it with utopian language about community and connection while peppering in trendy buzzwords like innovation, blockchain, and Web3 in order to justify an astronomical valuation, but I'm not sure if it's going to solve anything. Quoting an article from Business Insider, the core problem facing renters is not the lack of branded living. It's the high prices caused by a lack of supply, poor tenant protections, and the financialization of the housing sector. There's little reason to believe Flow is seeking to take on these problems. Instead of trying to build more housing, the company is taking over existing apartment buildings and attempting to create a premium brand to appeal to tech workers and other well-paid professional workers. Right, when we start to peel back the onion layers, it's hard for me to see how Flow is a legitimate solution to America's housing problem. Even their claim about providing a path to homeownership is somewhat dubious. The New York Times recently described rent-to-own homes as a win-win for landlords and a risk for struggling tenants, as these deals are oftentimes risky, they lack consumer protections, and may not be enforceable in some states with most tenants walking away with nothing, having sunk money for rent and repairs into homes they had once hoped to own. Like we covered before, Mr. Andreessen talks about this asymmetric access to housing, the, the lack of supply, along with Wall Street and other institutional investors outbidding regular families. Yet, the company he's investing in and touting as a solution has been buying up thousands of multi-unit housing complexes all over the country. They're not building anything. They're not adding to the supply of housing. In fact, Andreessen himself has strongly opposed the building of new multi-unit complexes in his own community. This is from the New York Post. Andreessen, 51, and his wife, the philanthropist Laura Aragala Andreessen, recently submitted public comment to the Atherton Town Council denouncing a plan to greenlight the construction of around 130 multifamily properties in the area, according to The Atlantic. Quote, subject line, all caps, immensely against multifamily development, the email from the Andreessens to the council read. I am writing this letter to communicate our, once again, all caps, immense objection to the creation of multifamily overlay zones in Atherton. Please, all caps again, immediately remove all multifamily overlay zoning projects from the housing element, which will be submitted to the state in July, the couple wrote. They will big all caps, massively decrease our home values, the quality of life of ourselves and our neighbors, and all caps once again, immensely increase the noise, pollution, and traffic. And there it is, the quiet part out loud. This is one of the most important points I want to get across in this segment. And that point is that Mark Andreessen, Adam Newman, others like them almost always correctly identify the problem but they are incapable of actually solving it even though they purport to want to because the incentive structure, both from a personal and business standpoint, cannot allow them to do so. On a personal level, they hold a common NIMBY, not-in-my-backyard type attitude. I want my neighborhood to stay the same. I don't want more people moving here, and I certainly don't want the value of my home to be impacted. Thus, even though they know more housing is the answer, they can't bring themselves to support such policies that can actually fix housing in America. From a business perspective, profit-seeking firms just aren't designed to solve tragedy of the commons problems. Andreessen and Newman, they talk a lot about new technologies and efficiencies, but those are entirely self-serving considerations. Casey Berman, founder and managing partner at a prop tech venture capital firm called Camber Creek, admitted recently Quote, I struggle with the theory that you can use technology to make things cheaper. 
The cost of the building is the cost of the building. When you reduce operating costs, how likely can you change the affordability of the asset? You change the profit of the owner. I think that's pretty accurate, don't you? I mean, I don't make predictions that often, but I will venture to say that Mr. Newman will make a lot of money from flow. And I also predict that Mr. Andreessen's investment in flow will result in generous returns, even though I think there's a lot of people actually out there skeptical about the financial outlook of flow. I think we often forget that Newman walked away from WeWork, a very rich man, and initial investors, the ones who invested prior to the later bloated valuations, also profited quite handsomely from WeWork. And that's fine because it's their job to deliver those kinds of returns. My point is, I think America has too long idolized the successful entrepreneur, harnessing the power of capital and business to solve problems. Sometimes they do solve problems. I'm here broadcasting to you this message because someone thought it was a good idea to use the internet to broadcast yourself. But what I am saying is that if we truly care about solving the housing crisis, the solution cannot be just to turn to venture capital and other private sector businesses who do nothing more than to exploit real problems plaguing Americans and use it as marketing material for branding and for storytelling to ultimately just create value for themselves. If we truly care about increasing access to housing for everybody, we have to actually support and pass legislation that addresses the core of that problem, such as approving more multi-unit zonings so we can build more housing, protecting the rights of tenants, and fighting back against the corporate takeover of America's housing market. That's it for me today. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this segment about flow to be helpful and informative. If you enjoyed this segment, I would definitely encourage you to check out my channel, 5149 with James Lee on YouTube, where I make videos on topics related to business, politics, and society. The link will be in the description below. Thank you so much for tuning into Breaking Points. And as always, I appreciate your time today. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.